Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club, and welcome to our discussion this evening of the uncertain future of nuclear deterrence. Nuclear deterrence is a dangerous, nerve-wracking concept brought about by the development of nuclear weapons. Also known by the striking terms uh, such as the balance of terror or mutual assured destruction, it's the way the U.S. and Russia essentially hold one another hostage. As terrible as deterrence is, it's been relatively stable since World War II, uh, preventing reckless behavior that could result in nuclear destruction. Now, however, there are a number of new factors to consider. Russia is engaging in the modernization of its nuclear forces, and it has implied that it could use nuclear weapons in the conflict in, the, in Ukraine under certain circumstances. China is engaged in a major buildup of its nuclear forces from a small deterrent to a large force equal to those of the U.S. and Russia. Many arms control agreements are best way uh, to manage the nuclear danger uh, for the past seven decades have been abandoned. Will these developments destabilize the nuclear balance? And what should the U.S. do in response? Here to discuss this very challenging situation are two experts on security, nuclear weapons, deterrence, and China, Brad Roberts and Tom Finger. Tom Finger is Shorenstein A. Park Professor at the Freeman Spogli Institute of International Studies at Stanford University. A China expert and career intelligence community leader, he served as chair of the U.S. National Intelligence Council. Also with us is Brad Roberts, director of the Center for Global Security Research at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, where he recently chaired a study group on China's emergence as a nuclear peer of the United States. Previously, he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear and Missile Defense Policy. Brad and Tom will each make some remarks, followed by discussion. So I'm going to turn first to Brad Roberts for some opening comments. Gloria, thanks so much for putting this together for us tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to participate. Uh, I should also begin by making clear that the Personal, the, the views I express are my personal views. I'm not here representing my employer or any of its sponsors. Uh, as I thought about this uh, event tonight, it, 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 it occurred to me that it's been a long time since we Americans have had a, a deep and broad conversation about nuclear weapons. When the Cold War ended, we put them on the back burner. We stopped thinking about them. We stopped worrying about them very much. There were moments of anxiety with uh, Al-Qaeda uh, and Iran and North Korea, but generally they've been in the background. And that's because when the Cold War ended, major changes in the security environment made possible big changes in our nuclear policy and posture. And one chapter ended and another began. <clears throat> Well, in today's circumstances, we're, we're, we're at the end of another chapter. We're at the end of that chapter that began in the early 1990s, and, and a new chapter has begun, and I think it's going to have implications at least as wide-ranging for our policy and our posture as, as the end of the Cold War. The difficulty, of course, is that the Cold War made it possible to do 
a lot of things that we wanted to do in the nuclear policy realm. We wanted to reduce the role and number and salience of nuclear weapons. We wanted to deepen the arms control process. We wanted to expand the arms control process. And we wanted to not spend money modernizing these weapons. And we were able to do all of those things. And in today's circumstance, we face a number of uh, implications and challenges that, that are unpleasant for us to contemplate. Let me make this case a, a little more um, clearly. At the end of the Cold War, of course, relations among the major powers improved dramatically. Uh, and <clears throat> in the 1990s, well, let's put it this way, the, the administration of uh, President George W. Bush issued a national security strategy which said we were in a moment of unprecedented opportunity historically to move major power relations onto a new footing of common interests, common responsibilities, and increasingly common values. Boy, is that world a long way away. Uh, we've gone from um, partnership to competition to rivalry to outright aggression by Russia in pursuit of its revisionist or President Putin's revisionist agenda. And of course, in, in this revisionist agenda, President Putin has given a central place to, to nuclear weapons and nuclear war. He considers them the, the primary instruments of Russian national power. Uh, and he, he, he brags repeatedly about having kept Russia's nuclear power powder dry during a long period when Russian weakness was exploited by the West. And he's developed a, a military strategy that, that involves, um, quote, nuclear scalpels for every military problem in Europe, end quote, uh, who, who might, that might be employed on a limited basis to, quote, sober, but not enrage his enemies. And of course, we've been shaken in our thinking about deterrence of Russia by the miscalculations that President Putin has made over Ukraine. Secondly, China. Uh, of course, in the 1990s, China was uh, an afterthought in the nuclear discussion. China was a country with 20 nuclear-tipped missiles capable of reaching the United States, has a no-first-use policy, wasn't spending much money on modernization, and the political relationship between China and the West seemed to be more or less headed in the right direction, albeit slowly. And of course, in today's world, Presidents Xi and Putin see eye to eye about the problems presented to them by the world order dominated by the United States. Uh, and apparently, Mr. President Xi has had a, a change of heart about nuclear weapons because he's pursued the, the largest peacetime buildup of nuclear weapons by China. It's a buildup, it's a modernization, it's a diversification, building new, new types of weapons for different roles. Uh, and, and of course, um, we don't know what role these might play in a conflict over Taiwan. And we don't know what President Xi might consider to be enough nuclear weapons. Uh, we hope that all he's motivated by is a sprint to parity but he's also talked about uh, developing a military posture consistent with China's place, at, at, quote, at the center of the world stage 
in the dominant position. A, th a third part of the, the chapter that began when the Cold War ended and is now ending is our optimism about nuclear nonproliferation. In 1995, to great fanfare, the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty was uh, given a, a, a new lease on life. Uh, and there seemed to be some headway among the, the permanent five members of the Security Council in dealing with the, the, the then proliferation challenges. And of course, in today's world, North Korea has long since crossed the nuclear threshold and appears well on the way to having a small nuclear arsenal of, of many dozens of weapons and perhaps a couple of hundreds of weapons. We don't, we don't know. Uh, the North Korean leader expressed a commitment to a, quote, substantial buildup of tactical nuclear weapons in the years ahead. Fourthly, our allies. In the 1990s, our allies were newly safe and secure and at peace with the Cold War ended. Uh, many of them don't feel that way anymore. Many of them feel... Uh, in, in the nuclear crosshairs of North Korea or China or Russia, and the objects of their strategies to try to separate America's allies from each other and from America. Uh, and thus we have worried South Korean allies talking about nuclear needs of their own and European allies talking about uh, how to strengthen extended nuclear deterrence. So in the 1990s, many things became possible because of positive developments in the security environment became possible from a nuclear perspective. And in today's world, um, many things are becoming necessary because of unwelcome developments in the security environment. And let me close with just comments on three, three points that, about things that have become necessary. One is that uh, despite our best efforts, political, diplomatic, uh, and, and otherwise, uh, the arms control regime, as, as you rightly noted, Gloria, um, is, is in, in collapse. The bilateral U.S.-Russian regime uh, has one, one piece left, and, it's, and Russia has essentially suspended its participation. The European arms control regime that was in place in 1990 is gone, and the multilateral NPT, Chemical Weapons Convention, Biological Weapons Convention regime is under great stress with the fact that Russia is essentially uh, a non-compliant um, um, major power violating the treaties. And so we're entering a period where the potential for arms racing is clear, uh, but where America's capacity to compete is very constrained by many investment decisions already made. Two, two more points. Uh, we also face the need to strengthen extended nuclear deterrence. Our allies in both Europe and Asia are seeking stronger nuclear protection from the United States. Uh, we've tried to do this essentially on the cheap. At the end of the Cold War, we brought all of our nuclear weapons home from Asia and 97% of them from Europe. Uh, and bet that we could extend deterrence to our allies with our strategic nuclear forces, and they're just not assured. And finally, for 30 years, we could avoid decisions about whether to modernize 
our nuclear forces. And we're in a situation today where they, the, the newest B-52 flying the nuclear mission entered into force in 1961. The newest Minuteman missile, which was supposed to last for 10 years, the newest went into the ground in 1971. Um, the, the list goes on. We, uh, we face a choice between modernizing and disarming. Uh, and um, no one wants to make that choice. Uh, and these are all politically unpopular problems that we now face. So with that, let me hope I've helped stimulate some interesting discussion. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Gloria. Thank you, Brad. And now moving on, Tom, over to you. Thank you, Gloria. Thank you to you and the Commonwealth Club for initiating this important discussion. I will uh, build on points that Brad has pointed to, but frame it with an observation that actually I'm quite sure Brad would agree with, that for deterrence to be effective, it has to be based on a correct understanding of those we seek to deter. Uh, that as we talk about the risks, nuclear risk posed by, by Russia, China, North Korea, uh, and more indirectly, India, Pakistan, that understanding their motivations and their concerns uh, has to be a part of the equation. And one of the things that has eroded or evaporated uh, in the years since the demise of the Soviet Union is the understanding that the Russians and the Chinese had of us and our understanding of them, that the factors, the developments Brad uh, identifies as sort of shaking up the playing, all the pieces on the game board exist in all three uh, capitals uh, and all are responsible uh, for reconceptualizing and adapting to, to new conditions. Simply characterizing what Russia is attempting to do or imputed to be doing, and the same for China, in accordance with the prevailing narrative about the motivations in these two places or the characteristics of the regime as revisionist, for example, is really not very helpful um, because it doesn't get at what they think they are doing and why they think it's necessary or desirable to do that. So in the next few minutes, I want to analyze or explain in very, very brief detail, some of what I see as motivations of Russia and China. And to explain what I think they are doing is not to excuse what they're doing or to denigrate its importance. Like these developments cause real challenges for the United States. Let me turn first to Russian thinking and developments. For decades, the United States and first Soviet Union, then Russia, had similar understanding of deterrence and what the requisites are for strategic stability, nuclear stability. Despite vast differences on other issues, our shared determination to avoid nuclear annihilation and our mutual understanding of what the other side was worried about was a key element of making deterrence effective. That 
that basis is gone. And as Brad outlined, key parameters have changed. They've changed at different rates and they've changed with different consequences. And they're perceived differently in Russia and China than they are in the United States. And together, these changes undermine the basis and the mechanisms of deterrence. Uh, uncertainty can be interesting, but uncertainty is not good for deterrence, uh, in my uh, view. Among the things that have changed is the longstanding assumption, I think both in Washington and Moscow, that the danger of escalation to nuclear conflict was a check on willingness to engage in conventional war. Putin's invasion of Ukraine has erased any confidence in that assumption. Another thing that has changed is the flip from Russian conventional or Soviet superiority in conventional forces to U.S. superiority in conventional forces. So nuclear weapons are more important to Russian thinking and Russian security calculations than they were through most of the Cold War period. How they judge that they need to deal with U.S. conventional superiority to deter us from exploiting our conventional advantages is a part of their calculus. That Russia is now more dependent on the nuclear dimension of deterrence than it was for a long time. That makes it more dependent on its nuclear weapons, on the reliability, on the safety, on the numbers uh, of its nuclear weapons, and on how we understand Russia's willingness uh, to use those weapons. Greater dependence on nuclear weapons is part of what is driving the Russian modernization of the weaponry. But like the United States, they got a lot of old weapons leaping ahead. Same is true of China. I would hesitate to turn, in, uh, to turn on a 30-year-old toaster. I'd be also very cautious about relying on 30-year-old systems that haven't been updated. And that's a problem and a dimension in, in all three of our countries that the uncertainty about the current situation and where it's heading naturally inclines force planners to think they need more. If you're not sure your old weapons will work or that your modernized weapons can contend with the modernization efforts of other players, sort of one way to gain a little more confidence is to build more stuff. And the building of more stuff itself complicates everybody's calculations. For Russia, they have to factor in U.S. modernization and upgrades. We know we're doing this for reliability and safety and in response to developments elsewhere. Moscow and Beijing see this as a new dimension of a problem that they have to have to deal with, have to counter, have to counterbalance. Russia's calculus is also complicated by China. The steps that Brad mentioned, the expansion, the modernization, the diversification of China's nuclear program is a factor for the Russians. I've engaged in enough talks with the Russians recently that 
they understand that the old bilateral balances and control mechanisms can't work anymore because China brings new elements into every equation. And the Russians insist that the Chinese must be included in any arms control talks. Let me very briefly summarize Chinese thinking and developments. In part, China is building more because it can. It has the capacity that it's begun to view numerical inferiority as a domestic political problem. Uh, whatever they think is necessary to counter a, a foreign adversary, they've got to deal with a domestic audience as well. They've also got old weapons that they need to modernize and are in a course of modernizing. As they modernize them, they build better stuff. They build smaller things and can build more of them. And that's all part of things that are understandable. But they're also driven by fear of the United States. Uh, since, give or take, 2008, they see the United States as much more threatening happy to talk about the reasons, but perceive that more is needed to deter the United States militarily, politically, and economically uh, than it was before. They're fearful that missile defense, primarily American, but also Russian, degrades their deterrent by degrading their second strike capability. Almost certainly they exaggerate this, but I think they believe it. And domestically, they have to respond to that perception. They worry that American advanced conventional systems can take out their control, command and control, which is also for nuclear weapons. And that puts in question its longstanding no first use commitment, that China would use nuclear weapons only if attacked by nuclear weapons. What is an attack on command and control by the us on them, by them on our systems in space? Is that a nuclear attack justifying a nuclear response? It's one of these unanswered questions. China appears to be expanding its nuclear and conventional systems. That estimates are to get parity with the new start limits on Russia of the United States. But the way they appear to be doing one of the ways they appear to be doing it is by expanding silo-based missiles, which is kind of the least secure leg of a, of a triad. And they're sort of, why are they doing this? Uh, what's the reason? Um, and we don't have answers to that. Final point I want to make is that China has long refused and continues to refuse to participate in any nuclear stability, what it refers to as arms control negotiations. Its position is until Russia and the United States build down to China, China's unannounced levels, it won't talk. But its refusal to talk is arguably the biggest driver of the scale of nuclear expansion, modernization in Russia and the United States, and the biggest impediment to bringing this under control uh, for all three of our countries, plus the allies, plus all of the third countries affected by that competition. Let me stop there. Thank you, Tom and Brad. And so I have, thank you for those uh, summary and, and provocative 
thoughts and comments. I have some questions for you, and I have some that are coming in through the YouTube uh, chat. So let me just get, let's get a handle on the numbers here with regard to China. Uh, now, the U.S. and Russian forces, nu- uh, strategic nuclear forces, are capped at 1,550 warheads at this time. Uh, or And the Chinese level has been what and what are they projected to get to, just to give a, a, a sense of the, the issue. Uh, nobody has very good numbers. Um because China, of course, releases no information about the size of its force. Uh, and uh, the, the U.S. government predictions from the Defense Intelligence Agency were for, for many years overly um, predictive of growth that then didn't occur. But in the last few years, uh, the problem has gone in the other direction, where China's forces have grown faster uh, and and uh, the the Department of Defense report that's most recent indicates that by 2035, uh, China will have something like 1,500 nuclear weapons. So now there's a difference between are they deployed or not deployed? Are they are they how how are they counted under whatever agreement might be in place? We have 1,550 operationally deployed accountable weapons under the new START treaty, but we actually have about 4,500 weapons, most of them not immediately serviceable, most of them in war reserves settings. But um, China will be essentially a a nuclear peer of the United States uh, sometime in the next decade because it will be capable of doing all of the things with its nuclear force that we can do with ours. They're coming from a base now or recently of how many strategic nuclear weapons? I would say about 400. That's where so they are it's... today, probably. Um, when, when, Tom, when, I, when I started joining Tom in, in dialogues with the Chinese uh, back in the 1990s, um, they, were, they had 20 weapons mm-hmm. capable of going intercontinental distances. And their basic deterrence theory was, if we had to worry that one might get through, not even certainly would, but might, that would be enough to deter us. Clearly, their thinking has shifted. So they're planning to triple or quadruple their strategic nuclear force by 2035. That's the judgment of uh, parts of the U.S. intelligence community. Brad says the Chinese have not provided numbers, have not provided inten- uh, intentions or targets for acquiring, it's been loose stuff like uh, equivalent to the U.S. and the Russians. But how do you measure measure that and the cost of doing this? this is a, even if they aspire to it, actually doing it is going to be difficult for them. But I think there's no doubt that the numbers will go up and they're likely to go up faster early than they are in a latter stage of expansion. And what strategic uh, threats and um, challenges does that present to the United States? I don't think it changes things very much, that they have the capacity to hold U.S. bases in Asia, uh, the United States at risk. Uh, 
I assume that they've got a counter value targeting cities, people, rather than a strictly military counter force uh, strategy. So I think at this point, their calculus is how many do we need in order to ensure that some get through? And the judgment of how many they need is clearly increasing because of concerns about missile defense. I say concerns about the reliability of their systems. But as if the analogy is an imperfect one, but with the Soviet Union, where both sides had such incredible overkill, we could destroy everything worth destroying in the Soviet Union several times over. Uh, and we realized that was crazy. The Chinese, I believe, still think that's crazy and are not attempting to match one for one, uh, either in terms of targets or number of warheads. They just want to think they've got enough to have an assured retaliatory capability. I don't think they're building for offense to start a nuclear war. Brad, your thoughts about that? Well, I don't think anybody's building nuclear weapons to to start a nuclear war. I think uh, everybody's trying to uh, ensure that they're capable of manipulating nuclear risk to prevent war and nuclear war. Uh, and I don't. I, I agree with Tom. I don't think the Chinese have changed views on that. I, I'm struck by the fact. I, I wonder who's making the decisions in Beijing about how much is enough. Um, for decades, it was pretty clear that the People's Liberation Army and the Central Military Commission were making decisions about how many nuclear weapons they needed based on a pretty clear deterrence logic. Uh, when President Xi Jinping took office, he gave one of the first speeches by a Chinese president that, that attributed to China's nuclear weapons uh, a role in underwriting China's great power status. And I have the impression a little bit that, that there's a buildup without much of a strategy behind it, uh, that there is a desire to uh, signal China's arrival at the center of the world stage in the dominant position, and, and please go build me a nuclear posture that's consistent with that, with, without a lot of, lot of fidelity. I, I hope Tom is, is right. I think he's right. But, I, but it's a circumstance that doesn't allow us to have a definitive assessment of, of motives, and there, there are plausible alternatives. And, and one, one other way to answer your, 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 your question, Gloria, is, you know, about the strategic implications of, of China's uh, nuclear growth, is um, having two nuclear peers creates a set of problems we don't we didn't have before. One is a problem for arms control, uh, figuring out how to cap a three-way competition in a manner that all three deem fair and acceptable, pretty darn challenging. Uh, and um, another implication of two nuclear peers is for extended nuclear deterrence. Right now, we we basically promise our allies in Northeast Asia that if it came to it and we we needed to bring nuclear weapons back to the region, we would do so by bringing them from Europe. But in the two-peer world, 
if there's a crisis over Taiwan, that's just the moment that President Putin is likely to see opportunity to pressure NATO. So we're, our, our global extended deterrence posture is, is likely under some growing stress in a, in a two-peer world. So I agree with Tom's basic argument about China's nuclear modernization doesn't change all that much in the U.S.-China strategic military relationship. But I think it does, the, the emergence of two, a second peer uh, brings with it a, a set of challenges which are, are novel. Just add one one point to, to that, and that's is how even a small nuclear state like North Korea makes a difference. With the allies that, that think quite literally often that if the U.S. has X number of weapons devoted to China and devoted to Russia, does it have enough for North Korea? And if you're South Korea, that's what you care most or worry most about. So the pressure on the United States from allies that uh, understand or interpret that a, a weapon that is dedicated to countering one particular adversary is probably not available to counter a different adversary or a different set of circumstances. So they think we ought to have more. And some of that addition should be dedicated to the allies. So I want to come back in a bit to potential U.S. approaches and responses, but let's get to some of the audience questions. Here's one. Um, hypersonic missiles, do they give China and Russia strategic advantage? Hypersonic weapons. Well, it depends. Uh, it depends on, on uh, the, the role they give them. Um, if... If um, if these are just uh, put into the force as one more way to, to deliver nuclear or non-nuclear weapons onto the American homeland, it, it doesn't really change much in the, the the balance of powers. It's it's unpleasant, but um, doesn't change anything substantial. If if however these are capabilities that they deploy to go after our command and control systems or our, our leaders in time of crisis. Uh, and, and if they believe that in doing these things, they can create a decisive advantage without running the risk of nuclear retaliation because they've used a conventional weapon in that role, uh, then, then this increases the instability of a crisis because their, their, their temptation to go first will be very strong. Uh, so the answer to the question, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, is it, it depends on the choices they, they have not yet made or appear not to have made about how to deploy them. Tom, is that how it looks to you? Yes, I have exactly the same. And the only thing I, I would add is that um, these are not new systems. It's a new incarceration. For the Chinese, it's new. We and the Russians had this some time ago but determined not to go ahead with them, in part because it was judged it didn't add that much, but it was a way to reduce the costs. It was to reduce uncertainties. This is a good example of the Chinese coming in as that third player that complicates greatly. 
Another audience question. I had a history professor once who said, no world power has ever built up huge weapon systems and then not use them. Comments. This will sound cute, but over what period of time? That we had a tremendous nuclear arsenal and advantage for decades after we used them uh, in Japan at the end of World War II. And we didn't use them. Uh, the Soviets had an even bigger arsenal that they chose not to use except as a deterrent. That uh, the conventional arsenals that we've had, I don't think is the motivation for the conflicts that we have entered into uh, in the years since World War II. Um, it wasn't, we have all of these toys, what are we going to do with them? So, I mean, I understand the point being made. The more you have, the more lethality you have, the greater the danger of a political decision to use them. But I don't think there's an automaticity from having a weapon uh, forces you to use it, use it or lose it logic. Brad? No, I, I have nothing to add. That's a excellent answer. Another audience question. In your opinion, if the USA would officially take our first strike option off the table, would this be a catalyst for genuine disarmament talks with the Russians and Chinese? Yeah, my short answer is the same. No. But, but, but to elaborate, it, the extended deterrence, that, that the uh, refusal to give up the potential for first use is a key element of assurance to our allies that that's what the nuclear umbrella is. An attack on them could, could trigger a nuclear response, not would, but could by the United States. And that is also a key pillar of our nonproliferation policies. Allies that are fully capable of developing nuclear weapons, you don't have to because you can rely on us. Another audience question. Do our allies contribute financially to our nuclear forces, given that they are protected by them? If not, should they contribute? Our, our European allies uh, participate in the NATO's sharing arrangements, at least some of them do. And what does that mean? That means they host uh, a few U.S. nuclear weapons on their territory, uh, and they own and operate the aircraft that would deliver them in time of war but only under the authority of the American president. Uh, this means they do share in the cost of maintaining NATO's nuclear deterrent. Uh, we don't have sharing arrangements with our allies in East Asia. Uh, the South Koreans would like them, um, but um, we don't have sharing arrangements and, and we provide nuclear protection with our strategic forces. And we, we don't, um, there's, there's never been a question about whether that they should share in the cost of, of our strategic forces, which, which we would have in any case. So um, from my perspective, the practice of, of burden, nuclear burden sharing is uh, fair and appropriate in the circumstance. The uh, one addition I, I would make is that uh, money is ultimately fungible. And our allies, you know, referring to the East Asia, Japan, and Korea, that pay a substantial portion of the cost of 
our bases, uh, maintenance of U.S. forces equipment in East Asia. Uh, that frees up money that we can use for other things. We could use it presumably for preschool education, but we use it uh, to fund other parts of the defense budget. So I'd like to return to the central question here, which is we're looking at, well, while numbers of nuclear weapons in the world have declined substantially since the uh since the Cold War ended, uh, there were at the height, I, th- I think, something like 70,000 nuclear warheads. And we're down to limits of deployed warheads anyway of uh, around 3,000 or so between the U.S. and Russia and, and smaller numbers by other countries. So we are not in the situation we were uh, at the end of the Cold War or during the Cold War. However... We are looking at potentially a doubling of the strategic nuclear forces um, that unfriendly countries uh, have deployed against the U.S. And I'd like to look at a range of responses to that developing situation. So number one, the U.S. matches the increase in Chinese nuclear forces in a numerical way. Good idea, bad idea, necessary, unnecessary. So you've worked on it officially, <laughs> Brad. Go ahead. Well, I haven't worked on it. Well, I worked on it officially a long time ago in, in my Pentagon role, but but this was one of our study group topics this past year. And um, so that's that's right. In the in the period that the the current arms control treaty, the New Start treaty has been in force, so since 2010. Uh, The U.S. has reduced its ability to strike at other countries, while the number of nuclear weapons that can be delivered onto the United States with long-range missiles has essentially doubled. And uh, what do we do about that? Uh, There's there's one one argument that says uh, we don't need to do anything because there is no prospect, there's zero prospect that we would face a simultaneous crisis with two nuclear-armed adversaries. One would get out of the way if the shooting started. Uh, At the other extreme is um, we need to build a one-for-one increase to keep keep pace. Um, uh, There's there's a third option in discussion, which is... um, uh, we should see this as an opportunity to opt out of the arms race at all and retire our one of the legs of the triad, the, the intercontinental ballistic missiles, and just put all of our eggs into our, our submarine force uh, and let the Russians and Chinese uh, race, if they want to, to some meaningless destination. Um, the, the, the course of action, I, I think, makes the most sense is one where we, we recognize the possibility not of fighting nuclear war simultaneously against two countries, but of trying to deter two countries, at, at least two, possibly three, at the same time in a crisis. Um, because the incentives to exploit the, a crisis in a different region to advance their own objectives could be significant. Uh, this, this isn't a strategy that requires a one-for-one uh, match, but it requires some growth in our capability uh, in order to be able to credibly say 
if you cross these red lines, we're going to do unacceptable damage to you. And sorry, one, one, one further point on this. The, the argument for, for doing nothing, um, I think, runs, runs counter to a set aside all the, the, the military calculations, a, a political calculus. Presidents Putin and Xi appear to hold to the idea that America is a country in decline and retreat. And this makes them willing to test our limits and our resolve uh, and to th threaten our and coerce our allies. Um, to not respond in any way to China's buildup would be read, I believe, in at least Beijing and probably Tokyo and elsewhere as proof of this un un unhappy proposition about us. I don't think we're a country in decline and retreat, but I think we, we need to demonstrate that that's so on this occasion. And, and two points, I agree with what Brad ha has said. And those two points are, there is an argument that we can afford a race that Russia and China cannot. And part of this, in my view, is a misreading of the end of the Cold War and the uh, Reagan era drown them in a sea of red ink. But there is a school of thought that we can use our superior economic power to weaken the competitors. The other point is uh, worth introducing into the discussion, and that's changes in American public attitude, that all of us sort of grew up when the idea of nuclear war was anathema that, uh, you know, having grown up in the 50s and 60s with action painting and hiding under our desks and uh, 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 that doing anything to avoid nuclear conflict was part of public sentiment that got reflected in uh, a politics and national policy. But uh, our colleague Scott Sagan has done some systematic polling of American attitudes and our fellow citizens today are far more willing to use nuclear weapons for what arguably are low threshold um, uh, kinds of reasons. And that is a part of the political atmosphere within which decisions are going to be made. Um, and it arguably the response is build more stuff to demonstrate resolve but if you build more stuff and there's more pressure to use it, you might actually have to do something you don't want to. Just chiming in with one of the comments uh, from uh, the chat from online, uh, could some modernization take place to keep systems safe and secure without spending trillions of dollars? Probably not. <laughs> well, we're with the, um, first of all, we, avoided modernization for a very long time. Um, the, the, the newest nuclear weapon built in 1990, the newest uh, delivery systems much earlier. Uh, and um, so it, it might have been less expensive at this point if we hadn't pushed everything off to the last possible minute. Okay. Secondly, the force we're talking about modernizing is the small is smaller than the one that was in place during the Eisenhower administration. Yes, gi gigantically expensive to modernize, but in the in the 
uh, grand scheme of things, the grand scheme of things being the defense budget. This is about 6% of the defense budget in any given year for, for about three to four years at the peak of the modernization wave. That's a lot of money, but it's also affordable. Protect ourselves through missile defense. We rejected that in the 1980s as destabilizing, technically not capable, uh, too expensive, potentially provoking uh, more offensive weaponry uh, deployed against us. More of an option now has technology developed to the point that we can defend ourselves, our homeland, um, our uh, other sites and, and interests in the world through missile defense? Well, we've, we've been of two minds on this since the Missile Defense Act of 1999, where we've said that we, we, we can have missile defense that's, that's big enough and effective enough to negate whatever th threats rogue states, so re regional challengers, might make against the United States. But we don't seek a missile defense so large, and it's beyond our reach technically and financially, that we would negate the strategic deterrence of major powers like Russia and China. And the and this, this sort of set of ideas has carried our missile defense policy for two decades. Uh, and it's, it's uh, being questioned today uh, when, when, the, um, when we're more worried about the missile threats from Russia and China than we were before. And when North Korea's missile force is growing at a more rapid rate than our than we can grow our defense, and our defenses are darn expensive. So, um, yes, the technology has changed. It it, it may be st improving. It's certainly improved relative to the Cold War, but um, missile defense still comes with a lot of complications, in, including the reactions of Russia and China, who don't believe that we're just after a missile defense that's big enough to negate the rogue states. Tom, would you add something to that? No, I, I have nothing to add to that. Arms control. Um, how would we approach Russia, China, both of them, um, to, in a way that would mitigate the threat to us and make the world safer and engage them? What, what path ahead do you see for arms control? Tom, you want to start? I'll start. Um, I think under the current situation of the relationship between Moscow and Beijing, that the Russians have a greater chance of enticing the Chinese into stability talks than we do. My interaction with official Russians fairly recently, they're very reluctant to do that, in part because they think they'd fail. Um, going from two to three, which is, as we've discussed in this hour, that's the most important set of countries. Probably this would need to be a, a P5. Um, yeah, the Americans deliver the the British and and the French in the talks, and the Chinese agreed to join with the 
potential uh, complicating of the Chinese wanting the Indians in or the Indians wanting to be in? Or what do, why do we use this to try to get at North Korea at the same time? And if it's really complicated to go from two to three, it's impossibly complicated to go up to five or six or seven uh, countries in this. But again, I would, if I was writing the script right now, I would try to have the Russians bring the Chinese in, but we're not in a position to ask the Russians to do that or to indicate that we're prepared to cooperate or pay the trade-offs that they would want to do this. Brad? Yeah, I agree with, agree with everything you said. Um, and, and I think the, the, um, the arms control interregnum we're, we're entering has everything to do with choices and perceptions made in Moscow and, and Beijing. That said, uh, I think we've been much clearer with China about why it's in our interest that China join arms control regimes than why it's in China's interest. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think we've been reluctant to take on the message from Russia that the hip bone really is connected to the knee bone. That, In other words, that, that we can't just say strategic stability is something that exists between the strategic nuclear forces of two big countries when they've also got missile defenses and hypersonic strike mm -hmm. capabilities and secret underwater torpedoes and, and nuclear weapons that might orbit in space, etc. So there, there needs to be some... Um, modernization of American thinking about arms control strategy. And I think it has to begin with, um, for the last 30 years, we've thought of arms control as an instrument of disarmament for good reason. We and the Russians were both willing to shed nuclear weapons from our arsenals if we could do so together. But that wasn't the traditional function of arms control. The traditional function of arms control was more about making sure that the deterrence relationships two adversaries were trying to create weren't unstable. And we, we don't really uh, knew, know what the new military problems are for which arms control might be the relevant solution. We're exploring these things. And there's a lot more room for good exploratory work uh, to lay the foundations for, for a future arms control regime when, when Russia and China grow weary of competing. Yeah, just one sentence I realized right at the end, and that's we're exploring it without talking to the Russians because of Ukraine. And we're exploring it with the Chinese continuing to refuse to talk to us about it. So there is a one hand trying to clap uh, element of what what we face. So we are getting towards the end, but we have about five minutes or so left. And I'd like to turn to questions of what our fellow citizens can do in this area. I was one of those kids doing the duck and cover drills under my desk in the 50s and early 60s and, you know, frightened by the Cuban Missile Crisis and so on. And often people feel paralyzed or overwhelmed by the thought of the nuclear threat and the situation we in the world are in, in this area. And um, what what can people do to A, learn more, B, become involved in some way, engage in activities that might help help with the issues, help with the problems? Go ahead. <laughs> You're ready to go, Brad. You got 
Well, I, I, I would suspect we're headed to the same destination, Tom, which is, which is, um, um, being, getting smart about these new issues. Um, things that are alien to us and, and dark and gloomy and seen from a distance are, can be scary. Um, I, I, I have colleagues who argue that we'd be much better off if America's leaders spoke in a very direct way to the American public about new nuclear threats. I, I don't think we need to engage in threat mongering. Um, I don't think it's a good thing to have the American public deeply, you know, building bomb shelters again. Um, I don't think the problem is that bad. Um, but uh, there, there are many options to to become better educated about the, the, the problems we face. Lots of different NGOs with with uh, good, good work available for people to engage with. Uh, and um, uh, I, I think um, and, and moreover, to understand the nuclear problem, you have to begin with the geopolitical problems and understand what's happening in political relations among the major actors. And of course, that's a, a giant um, uh, mystery and vastly entertaining story. And, and there are lots of opportunities to engage there as well. Well, you you raise a very important point. The way we would likely get to a nuclear crisis is through a conventional war, a crisis going on somewhere in the world that would escalate to the nuclear level like Ukraine. So anything people can do to help address the situation in Ukraine um, and any other regional conflicts that could lead to nuclear uh, use, threats, uh, is productive towards the ultimate goal. Indeed, and a significant part of that story is strengthening our alliances. Um, since we, 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 may, we may again elect an American president who's not committed to alliances, um, doing everything we can to strengthen them now and ensure their longevity. This is, this is the essential ingredient of a stable and peaceful security environment. You know, I, I read a very uh, excellent article recently in the current issue of Foreign Affairs uh, by Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Google and of Alphabet, um, titled Innovation Power. And um, there is a lot that our technology sector can do with smart ideas to protect the U.S., whether it's from um, cyber warfare or in the nuclear field. So uh, those who work in technology can contribute in this area through, again, smart ideas. I also just want to say there are many organizations from which one can obtain more information and even get involved in this field. The Arms Control Association, uh, the Nuclear Threat Initiative, uh, Plowshares Fund, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, uh, and at, at base. At Stanford, the William J. Perry Project, which you're probably aware of, Tom, uh, oriented towards younger people, uh, founded by former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry to help educate and engage younger people in dealing with the nuclear threat and the nuclear problem. So I recommend looking into those organizations. But Tom, I, 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 di I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, no, I, I, I don't have uh, uh, better ideas. I I think this has got to be bottom up uh, much as I would like to have political leaders that uh, spoke out in a, a, a sensible and a consistent 
way on the range of perils that we face, where nuclear um, uh, competition, nuclear systems, nuclear deterrence kind of fit into that. Right now, I think the the temptation to use the Russian and the Chinese bogeymen as justification for a whole range of other things, to include strengthening of alliance. I absolutely agree with with Brad. But the if we didn't have these real adversaries, we'd make them up or have to make them up to justify contentious and costly expenditures. And I think this is one where the public education and the NGOs and writing letters to editors uh, and pressing uh, appointed officials and uh, political candidates to get smart uh, on these issues. As we were speaking just before we went live here, there's a back to the future character to this, that, that all of us that started almost 50 years ago uh, with a tremendous educational effort uh, that achieved, uh, I think, a high degree of success, but it's got to be done again for new generations of people. Yes, time to time to engage on this one and see more coverage, debate, and discussion and learning uh, about the issue. So we are at the end of our time. Uh, thank you so much to Tom Finger of Stanford University, Brad Roberts of Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, um, this is a difficult topic. It's a difficult discussion. Um, I wanted to, us to have this at the Commonwealth Club to help start more discussion uh, in the public arena on, on these issues. So thank you for being our guides and leaders and for stimulating this discussion. Thank you so much to those who are online for this uh, conversation. There were some really good questions, really engaged group online. Thank you so much. Uh, this is the end of our program on the uncertain future of nuclear deterrence at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you all for joining us, and uh, we are now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.